Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Dick Folk. You can find us on national.cc or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Well, there you are. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you. I leave home in northern Colorado and I'm heading out the door and Ruth says, you love going to National Community. I said, yeah, those are my people. Those are our people. And they're young. <laughs> and I get charged up because I'm an old dude. So this is really cool. We're in a series on James, wrapping up this letter from the younger brother of Jesus to some folks who are scattered about in difficult circumstances. I'll come to that in just a moment. The baby girl was born on July the 11th. She would have been 112 years old this past Monday. Born to a farm couple in Southern California in the summer of 1910. She would be the eldest of six. In 1910, William Howard Taft was president in the United States, at that time, we had 1,000 miles of paved road. And that year, Henry Ford built 10,000 cars, all the same kind, all the same color. Four years later, the Great War started, World War I. Three years later, what they called the Spanish flu epidemic, which really apparently began in Fort Riley, Kansas, would kill millions of people, tens of millions. When she was 19 years old in 1929, the stock market crashed. By the time she got to 23 years old in 1933, 25% of the population of the United States was out of work. She lived a long and productive life, but it was a life not for the faint of heart. And I'll come back to her story in just a few moments. What James writes in the closing passage of his letter, she embodied this little girl. So let's see what he has to say. First of all, this is James. James is Jesus of Nazareth's younger brother. And he has this cool way of writing because he writes stream of consciousness. He's like all over the map, right? And I love that because I'm all over the map. Ruth, my wife, gets very nervous when I speak because he says, you know, you sort of, you're going along and you think of something and it's squirrel. And you go down there and she's out there praying, will he come back? Will he get back on track, right? So he's sort of stream of consciousness, but all the time he's in your face. That's who he is. I have a friend who's a former Navy admiral who says, I need to read James every once in a while just because he's in my face. You don't mistake what he's saying. And in this passage, you won't mistake what he's saying. And so, but my question is this. The theme this weekend is patience. And I'm saying, why, why would in the order of things, the old dude get this at the end when like he's the most impatient guy on the planet? Why would I, and maybe the Lord is saying, well, I've been trying to get your attention, so this is the weekend that I get your attention. You know, this weekend requires much deeper personal assessment. Once in a while, I'm asked to speak on something that really stretches me. This is it. James is coming down the home stretch of this letter, 
and he's wrapping up and he's speaking to people who are scattered, people who are overworked and overlooked. In the Hebrew tradition or in the truth of history, they were called the diaspora, the scattered ones. And what James does in this part of the letter is he is challenging an established culture. And the established culture was this. That there were people in power who had other people under their thumbs. And in this particular passage in James 5, the rich and powerful are unbelievers. Earlier on, he's talked to some wealthy people who, who were believers, but now he's talking to unbelievers, and the workers under them are believers. They're the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. So James, in this passage, is going to let both groups know that there will be an end to their present circumstance. When I was in grad school a bunch of years ago at Wheaton College, I had a, the best teacher I'd ever had, the best professor. She was about this tall, a sparrow of a woman, lively. I'm a 22-year-old, newly married guy. She's 57, she's single, she's very smart, and she listens so intently to you when you talk, it's like she sucks it out of you. Her name was Dr. Lois Labar, we called her Dr. Lois, and she, she taught education, and I was in an education discipline, and we were doing some lesson plans, and she said, Dick, she kept asking me, every week we're working on stuff, she's saying, what's the big arrow? What is it that you want people to walk out thinking, knowing, feeling, willing to act on? Where, where is that? Go there and work backwards and structure your lesson plan that way. Now that's popular model in education, but in 1963 it was not quite that widely accepted. And that's what James does here. He goes out to the end and says, this is how things are gonna work out, so let's work backwards from there. And um, what he is saying is a day is coming when all things, all this stuff that's going on, will be set right, and that will, be, that will happen when the master of all things returns. This is scripture. If you were to read it in the original language, you'd read the Old Testament in Hebrew, you'd read the New Testament in Greek and or Aramaic in certain places. And so it's been translated. A lot of different, so you, some of us like the New International Version, some like the American Standard Version, some like the New English Bible, some like King James, you know, that Elizabethan English, it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, you know, that sort of thing. But there were some folks who came along and paraphrased Scripture, catching the intent of it, but not exactly the same language. And many of you have heard me say this about one of my favorites, J.B. Phillips, who pastored in London during the Second World War, and he wanted folks coming back from the war, mostly men coming back from the war, to be able to understand Scripture in something other than Shakespearean language, right? And so he paraphrased it, and he said, in paraphrasing Scripture, it was like rewiring an ancient house without turning off the power. I think each of us is a paraphrase of Scripture. You know, it's, it's the scripture coming through Harriet or the scripture coming through Maria or Jose or Frank or whomever, right? And so here's a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson in this paraphrase called The Message. And you can feel the in-your-face part here. He's speaking to the rich, the wealthy people who are holding other people down, using them. And a final word, this is James 5, 1 through 6, to you arrogant rich, 
Now, he's not just talking to rich people because you can have wealth and be kindly and generous and all. That's not what these guys are doing. A final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. And the judge is coming is what he's saying. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for the judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. In, in the original, it's Lord Almighty. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter-than-usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. He's speaking to a culture where oppression and abuse in the workplace is matter of course. It's the order of the day. So the question is, how do the people who are feeling that, how do they respond? This is what he says to them, to the believers. Meanwhile, friends, wait patiently for the master's arrival. You see, farmers do this all the time, waiting for their valuable crops to mature, patiently letting the rain do its slow work or it's slow but sure work. Be patient like that. Stay steady and strong. The master could arrive at any time. By definition, dictionary definition of patience is tolerating delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I didn't read that to my wife Ruth before I asked her. Um, what do you think a definition of patience is? Here's Ruth's definition of patience. Strikingly similar. Patience is a quiet spirit that is not upset easily. Takes time to listen and senses the mood of the other person and what they might need. In this moment in time, James uses farmers as the model. Some of you listening here online, watching, you come from farming backgrounds. You might, in fact, be in farming now, although we're in Washington, D.C., and the heart of D.C. is not, not much farm around here. But, the, but I live in northern Colorado now in farming territory. I can drive five minutes from my house, and I'm in ranches where there's corn and sugar beets and so forth. And the point is farmers have to be patient. I mean, if you don't want to be patient, don't farm. If you want stuff to produce in the next day, don't be a farmer, right? Palestinian farmers then did not have the agricultural canals, the, the canals that you have in the Central Valley of California and other places that water the crops with regularity, and they had to have rains. They were totally dependent on the rains. So when they planted in the fall in October, November, they needed a rain then when the grain was sown. Then in April and May, as the grain was maturing, they needed rains then. And, you know, today we're in an on-demand, high-speed world where we're removed mostly from slowness of planting, watering, watching, and waiting for harvest. Last week, I called my friend Lynn Warfel. I met Lynn Warfel in 1969 when he was about 28 and I was a little younger, a couple years. We were church planters at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana down in East Central Illinois, about 140 miles south of Chicago. And he walked in one day with his wife, and long story short, along the way in those next weeks, he came to faith. He was a young guy farming 500 acres at the time. Later on, he farmed 2,000 acres of Illinois corn and soybeans. 
And um, I called him because I was talking last week about farming. And again, I'm talking this week about farming. Two different messages on different series. And um, I caught him. I'll put it that way. Caught him. He said, I, I came in to talk to you. I'm cutting down a 75-year-old willow tree. We have some drought conditions here in East Central Illinois. We're not getting rain as we should. And drought conditions and willow trees don't go together. Willow trees can't survive that way. And I planted this willow tree with my grandpa 75 years ago from a stick that we found by the creek. But it's time for it to end. All things end. And then a few days later, he sent me a note. And the slow-moving front had come through from the west across Missouri and Iowa and across Illinois and Indiana. And he said, we just got two inches of rain dropped on. It was a slow-moving front, and it just dropped it on the corn and the soy. And, he, and then he closed it this way, saying it was a billion-dollar rain. I called him. I said, Wait, is that just a euphemism? He said, no. Rain at the right time for corn and soybeans. That's like a billion dollars from two inches of rain, the difference in the timing of when the rain comes. The point is, being patient is hard. It's learned behavior. You say, how do you learn it? Well, I, I think in part you learn it when you find out fast doesn't always work. But you also learn it because the Holy Spirit of God, who is in you, he's the patient spirit, if you will. Patience is a time thing. I love what Peter Marshall, former chaplain of the Senate, said back in the late 40s. He said, teach us, O Lord, the disciplines of patience, for to wait is often harder than work. To wait is sometimes is often harder than work. So the farmer metaphor is just right. I want to introduce you to a farm girl. This is Ruth, my wife. Ten days from now, it'll be 59 years. And uh, this is, yeah, you can clap for her. She's been patient with a lot of stuff, I'm just saying, okay? And uh, she, she was raised in the Central Valley of California with grapes and peaches and almonds and so forth and so on. And I'm a city guy from Oakland, California, and when I started dating her and going over to the Central Valley, she introduced me to things like alfalfa. You don't have much alfalfa in Oakland, California. And I watched her be patient with me. I watched her be patient with our four children. I watched her be patient with her 12, our 12 grandchildren. She would plant and wait. She would do a little weeding and wait. She, she's a preschool person. That is, she's not trained in preschool. She just has magnetism for preschoolers. Two- and three-year-old people walk by me like I'm a piece of furniture. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't think I, I like them, but they're quick. You know, they're, they're just gone. And she would lay on the floor for hours doing puzzles with these little people whose attention spans were two or three minutes. They'd do it for two or three minutes, go away, do something, then come back and do it again. Same thing for... We have a 16, we have 12 grandchildren from age, the oldest will be 31 in a few weeks, the youngest is six. And um, one of them, Noah, is a 16-year-old, and she was telling me two days ago, Noah used to do this particular puzzle, and he would always want to do that particular puzzle when he was small, like three or four, whatever it was. 
And so in order to make it interesting, I would time him so to see if he could get a good time. And the other day I found that puzzle. She told me this last night on the phone. She said, Noah came today and I showed him the puzzle. And I asked him, do you want me to time you again? He said, you betcha. I mean, he's still there, you know. 13 years later, he's still after it, right? And, but there's, there's that, that quality of planting and patience in the garden of life, if you will, that's profound. See, we know this. We don't control God, clearly. We certainly don't control the elements. Some folks think they control the markets, but I have great doubt about that. The only thing we can control is ourselves. And when you read some of the epistles, some of the letters here, it's always talking about you need to control yourself. And when we can't control the big out there stuff that's pressing us down, if we're not careful, when we can't control the big things, we start nitpicking the small things. When I can't control this, I start nitpicking this, and apparently that's a problem. James says to these same people, friends, don't complain about each other. Don't do that. A far greater complaint could be lodged against you, you know. And the judge, he's, he's standing just around the corner. And this was not people being really blatant with each other, calling them out, calling them names, whatever. This was a low-simmering boil. That's the language that's used in the original is this sort of bubbling under the surface. So what James is saying, that there are two groups that can cause us to react. One group are the outsiders who oppress us and the insiders who irritate us. Those are like the two groups. That pretty well covers the world, but I'm just saying that that's what he's saying. Then he changes metaphor and says this. Take the old prophets as your mentors. They, they put up with anything. They went through everything, and they never once quit, all the time honoring God. What a gift life is to those who stay the course. You've heard, of course, of Job's staying power, and you know how God brought it all together for him at the end. That's because God cares, cares right down to the last detail. There's, there's a lot to be said for staying the course in the face of difficulty. Because with my personality and with my, if I get pressure, I tend to want to squirt out to the side. I tend to want to, I don't want to stand there and take that. And he's saying, when hard things happen, when hard times come, stand firm. This is, this is more than just when tough times come, the tough get going. I, I think it's more than that. But what's interesting about this, this theme is precisely where James started this letter. In the first chapter, what we call chapters of this letter, this is how it reads. James 1, second verse, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's interesting because the verb that is used there, the original, is the same verb used in that story of the Good Samaritan where it says, and a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. That language, fell among thieves, that's this language. Consider it pure joy when, when you fall into places that could steal your life. And I'm reading this and saying, why? And he says, because you know that testing of your faith produces, here's the word, perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's the definition of perseverance. Continuing with something even though it's difficult. I'm a human being. I don't want difficult. 
you know, let me do something else, but don't, don't give me difficult. I've watched scores of friends and family members go through things that in some cases I considered horrific. Just life coming at them. You know, challenges with physical pain or with economics or with fractures in relationships. And I've looked at them and, and said to myself, I, I could never handle that. And then something comes along that you don't think you can handle and the Lord says, well, well, why don't we handle this both? Why don't we keep doing this? I mean, there was, a, there was a time when I was president of a small college, and it was tough raising millions of dollars, trying to do this and that and the other thing, and I just wanted to run. Have you ever just wanted to run? I just wanted to run, and, and I happened to mention this to a friend, and he said, you can run wherever you like, but you just need to know I'll hunt you down. That I'm, his language was, I'm on you like ugly on an ape. I, see, I didn't like the language particularly. I didn't like the metaphor. But the fact is that that's what he said. So patience and perseverance aren't the same thing, but they're siblings. Patience would be, generally, how I deal with people, right? Perseverance is how I respond to circumstance, physical things. But they're linked and so in framing this message, I was talking to Ruth. In the last couple of years, I have started preaching my messages to Ruth before I go and preach them here or some other place in the country. And it's a very interesting experience to preach this to your wife or to somebody who likes you and will challenge you. And she always, almost always says the same thing. I'll, I'll be going through it, and I say, isn't that a good point? And she'll look at me, and she'll say, Dick, remember, less is more. And I, she said, that point, it's okay, but it doesn't move the ball down the field. Don't, don't do it. And if she were in the service, oftentimes I'd sit down after the message, and she'll lean over and say, good message, but you didn't need the third story. I'd say, but I like the third story. That's why, that's why I told it, you know. Um, but I asked her, I said, I asked her this question. What are the things that count in life that take perseverance? And she looked at me and said, you're asking the wrong question. I said, what's the right question? She said, the right question is, what things that really count in life don't take patience and perseverance? Anything that counts in life takes patience. It, it doesn't happen like this. I know you have guys who drop out of college and make a gazillion dollars on Thursday. I, I, know, I know that. But that's not me. Probably not you. I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying that's not how life usually works. Anything of quality. Take friendship as an example. Friendship is number one on Jesus' list, apparently. The night before the crucifixion, he's talking to his 11 guys that are left, and he says to them, I want you to love each other. It's a fourth paraphrase. Here we go. Fellas, I want you to love each other, care for each other the way I've loved you. I want you to do that. Greater love has no one than this, than a person lays down his life for his dad. Doesn't say that. For a spouse, doesn't say that. For a child, doesn't say that. What it says is, lays down his life 
for a friend. And you've heard me say this before, but I always thought friendship was sort of like watered-down love. Jesus makes friendship the definition of the greatest kind of love. And friendship takes patience. Friendship takes perseverance, hanging in when your friend or you do stupid stuff, right? Or whatever it is. When you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 13th chapter, that's sort of that, that treatise, that succinct, powerful treatise on love. Listen to how it starts. It starts this way. Love is patient. Love is kind. And patience, the actual word is long-suffering. You're in it for the long haul. That's, that's how it is. Anything you do, whether it's marriage or career or work projects, they take patience. If you're not patient with people and patience when, when the supply chain is fouled up beyond belief. Some of you understand supply chain fouled up beyond belief? Huh? Patience. My question is this. This is Jesus' younger brother speaking. I wonder how many times he heard Jesus tell the story of what we call the prodigal son in Luke 15, because I don't think Jesus told that story just one time. I think, you know, over three years, if you're making, and it's the best story for me in terms of what's the kingdom of God like, what's the king like, what's the father like, that's the story. And he's made, he is way more, this is way more than the prodigal son. This is not just a story of a wild kid and a good dad. This is the story of the waiting father. Listen to how it reads. Here is a, a young son who demands, wants his inheritance early, which in the culture is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I mean, it shames the family, shames the community. He gets it in Jesus' story, goes off, wastes it all, ends up in a far country, in a foreign land, Jewish kids slopping hogs. Worst metaphor, worst idea you could think of. And there's a famine. And this is what he says. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set up, set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is my favorite part right here, top of this page. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, <clears throat> threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now the community wants him to kill him because he shamed the community. He doesn't kill him. He, does. he throws the killer party. That's what he does. And I listened to the song. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, and I want to shout out, waiting father. The waiting, he's the waiting, this is the story of the waiting father. That prof I had at Wheaton grad school, Dr. Lois, she was patient with me as I tried to work on lesson plans, and she came and sat in a class where I was teaching a Sunday school class back in the day in Wheaton, Illinois. Not her church, she came and sat for 13 weeks. And then we'd sit and, you know, work on it afterwards. She'd do correct. She was patient with me. And Ruth, she's been patient for 60 years almost. And um, we have these four kids. 
And those kids, are they on the screen up there? No, they're going to be on the screen in just a minute. These are grandchildren. This is last week. We had a gathering of the clan, and the grandchildren surprised her because every month Ruth writes a letter. We're going to leave those pic that picture up for a moment. Every month Ruth writes each of them a letter. It's the same letter. It's got a corny joke. It's got a riddle. It's got some uplifting thing. And uh, I said every week. I meant every month she does that. And it has a $5 bill in it, so they'll open it, right? <laughs> And she asks questions about various grandkids, so they have to text each other to figure out who that is, right? Each of those grandchildren got a handmade quilt, because she's a quilter. Quilter would just, I, you'd have to put me away if I tried quilting, right? <laughs> and every grandchild, from the time she held these people, these big people, in her arms when they were newborns, she would record when she was with them, what happened, and as they got older, when there were three or four, kids say funny things when they're three or four. She's got that all written down. And when they, the year they come to graduate high school, she goes on computer, goes in to blurb, and makes a book called Grandma's Journal. And every grandchild, eight out of the 12 so far, have gotten a book like this with their first 18 years of their grandmother and their life together. It's their favorite graduation gift from high school so far. And I'm saying, I could never do this. I, you know, I'll buy you a small rusting car, but I don't want to do this, right? But it's who she is because she's a farmer. She's a gardener. She's, that's what I call a harvest right there. And last week, the reason they're together is last week they surprised her and some friends made high tea at a house and they all went there and surprised her and they gave her a rose. Each of them gave her a rose and they had written a letter with a $5 bill in it <laughs> and gave it to her. I, I looked for the money just before I came. I couldn't find it. There, but, but the point is this. That's what patience and perseverance can do. And it may not. Yeah, you can clap for her. You know, that, that's not your story. It's not my story. That's her story. Your story may be different, but there are places where we are patient and persevere that has a harvest at the end of it along the way. So, back to the little farm girl from Southern California, born in 1910. She had a long life. Her name was Gwendolyn, consummate musician. I've told you about her before because in 1930 she married a fellow six foot three handsome dude named Oliver. His last name was Foth, was Foth, and they were my parents. They were pastors for a number of years. And then 1945, we went to India right at the end of World War II. And um, en route, we took a liner from New York City to Alexandria, Egypt, missed the next connection, and spent six weeks in Cairo, Egypt at the end of the war. Very difficult time. My mom was six, had boils. She had like seven boils under each arm. Just a horrific thing. And then we went to India, and a year in, she had what we would call a nervous collapse. She had an emotional breakdown, and the Lord touched her through that. And she stayed the course. She got healthy, and we kept going, trusted God for the long haul. Then we came home, and a number of years later, after 29 years of marriage, my father left, and there she was, 54 years old. 
You say, that's not supposed to happen, stuff like that. Well, you've heard me say this before. Life is what happens when you expected something else. We can't control all the things. I can control me some of the time, most of the time, hopefully. But um, she's 54 years old, never worked outside the home. She had to teach herself to type back in the day. Went to Southern California near my sister, got a job, worked until she was 82. She drove in Southern California on the freeways till she was 92. You may have seen her. Uh, she wasn't the little old lady from Altadena in tennis shoes. She thought she was still in India. Metal to the pedal. When you rode with my mother, your prayer life was you'd exponentially increased, right? She never lost her love for Jesus. She stayed the course. She never lost her love for her children. She stayed the course. She never lost her love for music. And she never lost her sense of humor. She never lost her laugh. At age 96, dementia has kind of, had kind of crept in, and dementia is not funny, but my mom's funny. And on her 96th birthday, I was here in D.C., and I called her. She's in Southern Cal. I'm here. I said, Mom, this is Dick. She turned to somebody and said, my brother's on the phone. She's got four brothers, none of whom are named Dick. And I said, this is your son, Dick, Mom. She said, oh, Dick, honey, you live way over there, don't you? I said, yeah, I live in Washington, D.C. She said, you know, I've got a son in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, I said, Mom, that's me. And she just laughed and said, there must be two of you. <laughs> she died a few years later in 2010 at four weeks past 100 years of age. She always had this perspective of the, of the Lord's return. The master is coming. She embodied patience and perseverance. She always knew the Lord was near. She didn't know how or when, but she kept her eye on the prize. She looked for his coming to set things right. Okay. On her 93rd birthday, you know, you, you give people in their 90s stuff, they don't do that because they're already giving you back stuff that you gave them 10 years before. So you take them places and do stuff. So my sister and my two cousins took her to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Dana Park, California, to, for high tea. They walked in and there in the lounge there's this huge grand pannier, one of those fancy ones like a Busendorfer or something. And a guy's playing and one of my cousins went over and said, do you ever take a break? He said, yeah. He said, well, when you do, this young lady over here, my mom, 93, is a wonderful musician. And he said, okay. A few minutes later, he comes over and said, I'm taking a break, ma'am. It's all yours. They take her over, sit her down. She starts playing show tunes. And then she morphs into hymns. And then she morphs into gospel songs, and people start gathering around. And then she closes her eyes and throws her head back and starts to sing an old gospel song about the coming of Jesus. There's going to be a meeting in the air, in the sweet, sweet by and by. And oh, I want to see you over there, way beyond the sky. And my sister and cousins, they're bawling over here. And some people start singing. Some people know that song. There's something about keeping your eye on the prize. There's something about being patient like a farmer, staying the course. Because the Holy Spirit in us builds capacity for patience. I may not in my personality have patience. I'm only good at that. But the Holy Spirit is so patient. It's spiritual DNA. This is how Peter, the contemporary of James, says it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. 2 Peter 3, 9. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, waiting father. That's what I'm talking about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are so patient with us. You waited for me so many times when I wandered off because I thought I knew better or could do better or could have a greater adventure and you call me back to yourself to show me there's no greater adventure than being with you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy in our lives and for anyone who is here within the sound of my voice. If they have not understood that you are the waiting father that's, that's waited a long time for them, or waited a long time with them. Help that understanding by your spirit to be theirs this day. In Jesus' name we pray.